but many people may not know, and I spend a chapter or more on this in the book, that it was the second highest secret project for the US government during World War II behind the atomic bomb. So you had the Manhattan Project and then you had the penicillin project. And when the government after Pearl Harbor went in full bore to say, okay, we're gonna make penicillin, it spent tens of millions of dollars creating the, the factories for, for Pfizer, for uh, Merck, uh, for you know, the, uh, at that time, Wyeth and others that came in that had the fermentation tanks to develop enough penicillin to produce. And as a result, it was the miracle drug that when we came out of World War II, the industry had changed. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists, deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. So if you think you have a pretty good handle on the opioid crisis, the pharmaceutical industry in general, and how it all works, today's episode may challenge that assumption. It certainly did for us. Today's pharmaceutical and biotech industries are like no other. How they got to where they are is a story like no other. The same businesses that have given us incredible life-saving advances have also given us disasters like the opioid epidemic. The history of the pharmaceutical industry is more complex and captivating than you might even imagine. Today, we're happy to have award-winning investigative journalist Gerald Posner with us. He's written 12 books, including national bestsellers such as God's Bankers, Mangala, The Complete Story, and the Pulitzer Prize finalist, Case Closed. His latest book, Pharma, is a master's class history of the modern pharma and biotech space. Understanding that history is critical to understanding the present opioid crisis. In fact, we didn't get to the opioid crisis until the final 15 minutes of the podcast. There was so much to cover, we asked Gerald for an extra 30 minutes beyond our usual hour. Even that wasn't enough, but it was a great conversation, a lot of fun, and hopefully all the reason you need to check this book out for yourself. It's well worth it. With that said, let's get started. Gerald, welcome to the show. We're delighted to have you. Uh, Colin, great to be with you and Keith. Really a pleasure. So Gerald, before we get into the story, and there's quite a quite a story here to explore, there's a lot of really cool factoids in this book. A lot of these things, wow, I didn't know this, I didn't know that. Let's start with one here. Tell us what Betadine has to do with Apollo 11. You know, I, I love this. Uh, it, it, there are, you say, these unusual little offshoots of the story. And so a lot of uh, listeners and physicians will know Betadine, great disinfectant uh, scrub. Uh, they may not know that it was actually uh, marketed and owned by a company called Purdue Fred Frederick, uh, a small sort of... Uh, little Lower East Side pharmaceutical company that had a, a group of products that weren't very extraordinary, but were owned by the Sackler brothers from 1952 and on, the three patriarchs of the family. Uh, the Sacklers will ring bells because they own Purdue Pharma and best known for OxyContin, their best-selling opioid painkiller. But way before that, when they owned Purdue Pharma and they had Betadine, the the oldest brother, Arthur, had a great marketing idea, and he was a marketing genius of sorts in medical advertising. He said, you know, they're sending this uh, space capsule uh, to uh, the moon for the first time with astronauts. 
And a book had just come out from a first-time writer, a doctor as well, Michael Crichton, called The Andromeda Strain. Yeah. A lot of people may remember that's about a sort of a, a alien microbe coming back from outer space, infecting the planet and causing a cataclysmic pandemic and end of the world. So they were a little concerned at NASA. There was this general public anxiety about what might come back as a microbe from outer space. And Arthur Sackler and his brother said, well, you've got betadine. Betadine will kill any alien microbes and went to NASA and pitched it. NASA said, that sounds like a good idea. So when Apollo 11 splashed down in the sea, the astronauts scrubbed themselves down their spacesuits and the outside of the, uh, the little rubber dinghy that they had in the space capsule itself for that door with Betadine. And the Sackler brothers had tens of millions of dollars of free advertisement. It was the drug that saved the Earth from a uh, sort of a terrible microbe coming in from outer space. And uh, they made a ton of money on a very inexpensive disinfectant that they sold at very good volumes to the Veterans Association, U.S. Army, and everybody else. It's a little capsule story of not only Betadine, but of the genius of the Sackler brothers in terms of marketing drugs. And man, they are some characters. We're going to Big characters in our story today. We're going to talk a lot about them. Let's let's take a big step back here because I learned a lot of history in this book, a lot I had no idea about, and it's important, you know, to kind of see where we're, we're headed. Take us back to the Mexican-American War. Uh, many of the casualties and fatalities, actually, according to your book, eighty-seven percent did not come from direct fire, direct enemy fire, came from something else. What was that, and what was the concern after the war that the U.S. government had? Yeah, you know, I'm, uh, when you say that, it's interesting, 87%. I'm always wary about statistics when I hear them now from uh, some government that has a precise statistic about a large body. And you're especially worried about it with this from the time of the Mexican-American War in the middle of True. the 19th century. But an overwhelming number of the deaths were actually battlefield casualties. It came from blood infections and infections it caused from the wounds afterwards. There was no way to treat it. They didn't have antibiotics. We didn't have penicillin for nearly another hundred years. And so what was in big demand was the next best thing. If we were able to save your life on the battlefield and you didn't die from a, from sepsis or some blood infection, you certainly needed painkillers. So there was this boom that started really after that for morphine and its derivatives of opium. Uh, the Through that period, through the Civil War, that demand from drug companies in a period in which really uh, patent remedies uh, are, are being marketed. There's no restriction on what can be sold uh, as a drug. And so therefore everything goes. It was cannabis, uh, it was cocaine. Uh, you could order from, I guess the Amazon of its era was the Sears and Roebuck catalog for $1.50. You could order a small hypodermic needle and a, an amount of pure cocaine for injection. The alcohol was used as a, as a base in a lot of the tinctures, and these patent remedies promised everything. They were miracle cures. There were no restrictions on efficacy or, or safety, for that matter. Not that much was known, really, about what caused diseases or illness, but what was known is that if you gave enough morphine, if you gave enough of it, um, it certainly alleviated pain. And so the demand for morphine is really the birth of the early American pharmaceutical industry, and I mean that by... You, both of you, Colin, and you know, you know this, Keith, are names that we know today. The two German-American cousins, the Pfizer's uh, in Brooklyn, set up a chemical plant that then starts to produce morphine. Uh, Edward Charles uh, Squibb is a union colonel who starts to produce morphine a little bit afterwards. Uh, Welcome and Burroughs are two uh, people. Uh, one is a, a Detroit health commissioner and another is an investor. And they start up with Park Davis. So these are the names, Eli Lilly, come out of this period in which their main product is really painkillers in a whole variety of different formats. I wonder when you were digging into this research, I mean, 
you could literally, yeah, Sears and Roebuck catalog, go to your local corner drugstore, whatever it actually really was then. There's a lot of things sold in those places. Um, Cocaine, heroin. Heroin was actually patented by a company, right? Um, You know, uh, you just mentioned, I'm sorry for this sidelight, but one of my favorite little tidbits or factoids in the book is that Bayer, the German pharmaceutical industry was ahead of the US pharmaceutical industry. They had started really in the 16th century, the companies, you know, like Shearing and others. They, and they they weren't very advanced in terms of what they were producing, but some of their research inside the labs were pretty good at that time. So over a five-year period, Bayer, which is really the leading company of the era at the turn of the 20th century, they come up in 1897 with acetaminophen, you know, we know it as Tylenol. Uh, the next year they come up with aspirin, the very same team. It's remarkable. And that's a true wonder drug. Uh, and then a year and a half later, 18 months later, they come up with heroin, uh, a derivative of morphine, which they call after the German word Herosh for heroic. And they brand name it as heroin. It's marketed, by the way, as a cure for morphine addiction. Um, and then two years later, they come up, they create the entire class of barbiturates. And their brand name is phenobarbital. Now, my favorite little tidbit about this is this amazing research team, acetaminophen, aspirin, heroin, and barbiturates with phenobarbital. The only one they didn't put to market was acetaminophen because in their laboratory test, they viewed it as too toxic on the liver. And therefore, I love the fact that they thought heroin and phenobarbital was better than Tylenol, but that was the marketing at the beginning of the 20th century. Incredible. It's interesting. You you do bring up that they were aware of morphine toxicity and all. Um, at what point did people start having a sense that these wonder drugs and everything were were not just wonder drugs, that they were making people sick and that there was abuse of them as well? The Not, not until, okay, so what's interesting about that, Keith, is there was a denial for a long time. And I looked, the book doesn't include all of the the press reportings that I went through back in the late 1800s and in 1901, 1902, leading up to the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906. There there was increasing press coverage of the fact that there was an addiction problem inside some of the cities, but it was blamed always on users who had abused the drug as opposed to those who took it for its proper purposes. You've heard this before. We've heard this in current times. So it's not really a problem with the drug. It's a problem with the users who aren't using it correctly. They're using it too often. And when the Pure Food and Drug Act is passed in 1906, the first federal regulatory act, there's no regulation beforehand. No prescriptions, by the way, required for any of these drugs. You walk in, you're over 18 years old into any uh, given pharmacy or the equivalent of it, you could get the drug. Um, And when the when that act is passed, it doesn't really change anything. No prescriptions are still required, not until 1938 for controlled substances. And what's interesting about it is it's really only for labeling, correct labeling. So if you're putting in uh, opium and, and alcohol, you have to be able to say that in, what's in the label in the inside the medicine, but it wasn't about efficacy. And it's not until 1914 that suddenly the country and most of the European countries realize they have a real problem. It's building up to the beginning of World War I. And they pass in Europe a series of laws banning uh, controlled substances. And we in the US passed the Harrison Act, which makes everything that's heroin, opium, cannabis, uh, 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 cocaine, overnight illegal. And so therefore all the users go cold turkey and the industry goes cold turkey. And then a few years later, we go into that great experiment on banning alcohol with prohibition. So they've lost alcohol as a basis for drugs. And except for the discovery of insulin in 1922 by a group of Canadian researchers, and Eli Lilly locks up the distribution rights, there's really no drug innovation 
from that period on because the industry has to wean itself off the narcotics that it sort of grew up on. And it doesn't wow. really come out of that until World War II and penicillin. It's like Mark, Mark, Michael Corleone trying to uh, get the family into the legitimate business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and it turns out the legitimate business turned out to be much more profitable than the smaller business beforehand because we started to understand more about what caused illnesses and disease. Uh, and as a result of that, they were able to target, I think, specifically drugs to help really come up with cures. And, and you know, and it, the, the difference between the pre-World War II American pharmaceutical industry and the post-World War II pharmaceutical industry is night and day, both in terms of knowledge, but what it's like. And it's hard to overemphasize the turning point of penicillin. Not only is it one of the greatest ever human discoveries in my view, it's, it, it, mm -hmm. it truly is. is a drug that you know, saves millions of lives over time of people that would have otherwise always died from serious infections from taking place and stopping infections from developing into ones that would otherwise hospitalize you. But many people may not know, and I spend a chapter or more on this in the book, that it was the second highest secret project for the U.S. government during World War II behind the atomic bomb. So you had the Manhattan Project, and then you had the penicillin project. These, couple, these English researchers from Oxford trying to interest the U.S. government and pharmaceutical companies to manufacture it. And when the government, after Pearl Harbor, went in full bore to say, okay, we're going to make penicillin, it spent tens of millions of dollars creating the, the factories for for Pfizer, for uh, Merck, uh, for, you know, the, uh, at that time, Wyeth and others that came in that had the fermentation tanks to develop enough penicillin to produce. And as a result, it was the miracle drug that when we came out of World War II, the industry had changed. 1939, going into the war, German pharmaceutical companies produced one out of every two prescriptions written in the world. At the end of World War II, 19, uh, end of 1945, American pharmaceutical companies, 10 of them, that had been the key part of the pharmaceutical, of the penicillin project, controlled 70% of the world's drug trade and 80% of its profits. That six year period had turned around an industry. The German industry had been decimated, bombed into smithereens in the taking of Germany. It opened the door for the US industry and penicillin put them on steroids, so to speak. So <laughs> that change in that period is unmatched. I want to uh, continue there, but let me take one step back very quick because I'm, I'm really curious about just the overwhelming availability of these drugs, you know, especially prior to 1938, at least in the U.S. What do we know, Gerald, of what life was like? Because I, I, I can imagine if I could just go over to the CVS and get heroin, you know, and anybody could. It, to me, it seems like society would completely shut down. It didn't, but there were obviously huge addiction problems. What, what do we know about that, especially the levels of addiction? And then you said they went cold turkey once the first legislation came out on, yeah. on so, uh, so, controlled substances. So I, I, two things happened. After 1914, when controlled substances are, are actually, you know, essentially banned at that point, uh, and then 1938, you need a prescription. But when everything goes from being available easily to not being available, what you see through World War I and into the 20s, is the growth of criminal gangs inside the US. There's a, there's a parallel story here that's not told in the book. I mentioned in one footnote, which some historians of crime in the US and drug gangs and, and syndicates and, and Italian mafia and, and Chinese gangs talk about in terms of uh, the big Chinatowns in San Francisco and LA and Tongs, the, the growth of gangs that supplied the product for those people who had been addicted to it, still needed it, but could no longer easily get it. So. There was this addiction problem, underlying increase in crime that took place. 
And sometimes when we talk about drug legalization, this is too facile a comparison. It doesn't fit. I understand it's apples and oranges. It's a different time. When people say, what about drug legalization? What about the Portugal model? What about making things easily available? I, I sometimes say, well, we had that in the US. We did have legal drugs. We didn't obviously have the education that went with it, but the, the results were not so great. So you know, we just have to be careful. There's no panacea here by saying, okay, uh, everything's illegal, it's not working, the war on drugs doesn't work, so we'll make it legal, that'll make it simpler. There are consequences and unintended consequences all the time when you make decisions like this. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, it makes me actually want to look at this period a little more too, because I don't know how good the data was, but the addiction rates just had to be off the that, chart. That's and right. probably but, across the board, every that, SE level, I would imagine. That, that's, but what's interesting though about it is you don't get a reading, and I've looked a lot at what was available in terms of the data, you don't get a reading for the, the higher end of the socioeconomic level. And that might be because the people who were earning um, good uh, incomes or had the equivalent of early white collar jobs or that in, in New York or San Francisco or LA, weren't necessarily going down and being listed as an addict by the local health oh, board. Okay, they were probably okay. getting independent right. assistance to be able to wean themselves off of that. So they don't appear in the statistics, but you know that it had to, I agree with you, stretch through every part of society. The interesting I mean, thing- If I went to my here, dentist and got cocaine, I think I'd want to try it again probably. I've so, never done know, it, but it sounds, from everyone, so, everything I've heard, it's, 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 it's an so enjoyable imagine, experience. So, so imagine that this is available easily and there's no education going along with it. So it's being sold also as miracle drugs so that it's being told that, you know, they were literally selling heroin um, uh, and morphine being sold in the number one of the biggest products pre-1914 was a thing called Coop's baby uh, cough syrup. And it was morphine. It was a third tincture of it. It killed some children, but it would keep your child from coughing at night, would keep them quiet and sleeping. So I bet. when I look at the future, I yeah. wonder about medicinal marijuana or recreational marijuana, which you see CBD and other things sold for a whole host of things. You know, it's going to cure pains. It'll leave arthritis. It'll help you think clearer. Um, all, you know, if these aren't regulated, and I'm not predicting disaster, but I'm just saying if you don't regulate the claims of the, the cannabis products, we're back to where we were 100 years ago with people trying them for a whole host of things that may not work, creating unintended consequences and side effects. So I'm a little wary of it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's the whole nutraceutical versus pharmaceutical argument, right. which is a totally different story. But it, it is interesting. We're skipping way ahead in the story and not not intending to get us there. But we saw that in your book where with the schedules where they left diazepam off the the schedule one or schedule two, if I if I'm correct about that, because, quote, it didn't have the abuse potential. Well, it did, but it didn't have the street crime potential. I think that was a socioeconomic or a political decision. So, that, Yeah, that's very interesting. And you're right, just to cover it very quickly, but when they do make the schedules for drugs, there's politics taking place behind it, meaning the drug companies are in there. They're not just letting um, you know, the, uh, a, the, the, dr the federal government classify a drug on a higher schedule, which means it's harder to get, it's tougher to get the prescriptions, you don't get repeat prescriptions. They want it on a lower schedule, and that's from 1970 and on. So definitely with diazepam, you had uh, Hoffman de Roche on Valium pushing it down as low as possible. Right. And one thing for people to note, you often will hear people say, oh, marijuana is a class one. It's the same as, you know, cocaine and heroin it is way over regulated. And that's true. But what I talk about in the book, and I didn't know this until I did the book, is that 
Nixon wanted to control marijuana. He wanted some laws to control it. And the, he put up a commission. That commission, the Schaefer Commission, came back with a recommendation. We think it should be decriminalized. Nixon yeah, hated that. So right. he put it on Schedule 1 as a negotiating tool to say, okay, until you guys come around and give me some real proposals, it's going to be a Schedule 1 drug. Then nothing was done on it. Washington. Nixon resigned, and it stayed a Schedule One drug, which was way <laughs> overclassified for what it was. So, the, be careful of the the schedules one through five. They're sometimes right, sometimes not. Right. Yeah, I didn't know that either till I read your book. I, I yeah. was blown away by that. It's another thing to thank Nixon for. But, uh, <laughs> but there's also another character that was involved in that. Um, we're going to get to him later too because he was he was pretty interesting. All right, so I got you off track. So let's get back to post World War II. Here we're talking about a major change in the U.S. pharmaceutical industry and then the entire world. Let's talk a little bit about antibiotics because, and I think there's a, there's a mentality then too that science can solve any problem that we have right now. I mean, look what we just accomplished and look what we're going to accomplish in the next few decades. We were coming up with all sorts of antibiotics at this point, and then it slowed. Um, let's talk about just the process of discovering an antibiotic. I mean, it's, it's a lot of brute force, actually, of just testing, 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 and trying to find the one comp or the one you know, derivative of a, a mold that works. Tell us a little bit about that, what was going on. Yeah, you know, I think it's fascinating because if you view penicillin, uh, here's this great drug, but one of the things the government did is say, okay, we're going to build the factories for you. We're going to do, you're going to do the research. You're going to be part of it but no one owns it. So there's no patent on it, which is interesting. So all the companies are competing at the same basis with penicillin. You're Pfizer, you can turn it out. And if you're, uh, you know, uh, uh, Merck, you can turn it out. And the price basis is the only competition. That meant the price went down very, very fast. Profits were low. So they're all looking for other antibiotics to turn out. Narrow spectrum antibiotics like penicillin and the holy grail at the time was broad spectrum antibiotics that would would be more effective against a broader range of infections than just penicillin. And the process really was literally like looking for a needle in a haystack, except here we're looking for a needle or a bit of material that might have some antibiotic, an organism that might have some antibiotic qualities in soil for the most part. It could also be in fruit and vegetables and people are sending in, uh, these companies were literally getting tons of soil from different areas, as well as looking for what would be the equivalent when you take a cantaloupe and it seems to be a few days past its best date and a little uh, as that wonderful sort of bluish green uh, fungus growing on it and you get that immediate taste or smell uh, that you spit it out. That's what they're looking for inside the lab. And, and regular hoping, people are sending these in, right, from their house. Sending them in. It's a fantastic story yeah. about, you know, collecting all types of material. And they're sifting literally through it, looking in the laboratory inside for some, inside, you know, some antibiotic response, some response from this bacteria that might show that it could be effective the same way that penicillin was. And then they would have to do, start their testing process on it and literally it was like finding that needle. So here's the question that came up for the drug industry, and this is a, a, an inflection point that worked out well for the industry. Uh, and that was, could you patent a product of nature? If you find it in nature, if it's been produced in some rotting fruit or in the soil or that, could you then say, oh, I found it first. Okay, I'm Merck, 
I got it. Here it is. Now I want to get a 17-year patent to sell that exclusively when I make it. Because the old line had always been in the courts that said you couldn't patent a product of nature. In the mid-50s, you know, when, when we get a polio vaccine, uh, one of the, the first ones, Jonas Salk has asked in a radio interview, uh, who owns it? And he says famously, you know, could you patent the sun? His idea was, uh, yeah, you know, I don't think anyone does. Uh, and finally, they went to court on this because they were fighting over whether, in fact, uh, you could patent. And the Supreme Court said, yes, you could because although it is a product of nature, the process that you take then to change it into a workable drug that is given to people deserves more than just a process patent, more than just something that's done in the lab. You deserve to own the rights to that for the time being. And that set off a gold rush by the companies to find their own antibiotics and their own streptomycin being one of the first broad spectrum antibiotics, the variations of their own antibiotics. And what I mean by that, and you both know this, this is a fascinating product. First, you get the Supreme Court to say you can patent a product of nature. And then the next question is, how different does your antibiotic need to be from a competitor's antibiotic? So the famous case is aramycin, which is made by Letterlay, it's this broad spectrum drug, it's fantastic. And Jack McKean, who's the hard charging CEO of Pfizer at the time, ends up saying, I want my own antibiotic. And he comes up with teramycin, which is only one atom of difference from its competitor's drug. It makes no difference in its <laughs> efficacy, no difference in the way it's dispensed, but the FDA says, mm, molecularly different, gives them a separate patent. So that opens up the Pandora's box. You then get the what I call Me Too drugs, very close molecular drugs to existing drugs and not necessarily better drugs for the patient, but better drugs for the companies that own the patents to them. And one thing here too, I, I didn't know this until I read this in your book, Alexander Fleming, when he was giving his acceptance speech for, uh, for the Nobel uh, Prize, he warned about antibiotic resistance. And so this was not unknown at this time. How did most people view this? Was this a threat generally known or was this just ignored? Yeah, well, you know, it wasn't generally known. As a matter of fact, my, my wife, uh, Tricia, who's also an author, and she works with me on these projects, um, you know, we would say, oh, it's those, those Brits like Alexander Fleming, they're eccentric. Look, he's talking about if you use his wonder <laughs> drug too much, you maybe will get some resistance to it or that or it won't work as well. Who, who believes that? He's probably trying to limit the distribution to up the price or some such crazy idea. Uh, <laughs> the thing was, there were some reports. There was a report out of Japan back then that they thought that there was some resistance possibly to a group of people who had taken antibiotics, but it was never, we never investigated it it was considered such a panacea and it wasn't undoubtedly a wonder drug that antibiotics were not only prescribed heavily in the 1950s, but now looking back on it, I think that most physicians would say they were over-prescribed because they were thought of as a wonder drug. If you walked into an office and had a scratchy throat or you had the sniffles or a little bit of a fever, the doctor might be able to take a culture, a throat culture, and find out if it was a bacterial infection. Because as you know, I mean, antibiotics are only going to be effective against bacteria, not against viruses. But they would have to wait three, four, five days to get that culture back. If it comes back and is positive and you did have a bacteria, they've already waited in giving you the drug that would be effective at clearing it up. And maybe it's going to become a more serious illness as a result of having waited. So they would often just prescribe the antibiotics right away, figuring preemptively it's probably a bacteria. And if it's not, if it comes back and if it's a virus, it's not the end of the world because the drug's not going to do you any harm unless you happen to be one of the very few people allergic to it. We now know, of course, it does do harm in that we start to give it to people who don't need it. And that's the basis for developing over time with repeated exposure to antibiotics, resistance 
I started the book with a thing called Patient Zero, the first patient in America to die in a hospital in 2016 in Reno, having been given every antibiotic known to us in the United States and resistant to all of them, to otherwise a bacteria that should have just been a regular infection and not fatal. So the threat of antibiotic resistance we know is real now, but certainly was not in the 50s or 60s. Yeah, and I'm not sure we've necessarily learned our lesson because we've we we're in the the zithromycin age where people are still giving antibiotics for colds and and whatnot because yeah. it's there's still a well what harm could it do? I think what I was surprised in your book and it it comes next on the heels was the fact that they were actually adding uh, penicillin to decongestants and things like that to create these wonder cold drugs. Um, so just get the whole package and, and the problems that arose from that because it was a fixed dose of antibiotics. Can you discuss those some? Yeah, you know, the, the fixed dose antibiotic was, it turns out to be really more of a clever marketing tool, although there was a debate inside the industry for quite a while with a minority of researchers believing that they were useless drugs from the get-go, but the, the marketing departments thinking they were quite useful because they were quite lucrative. Um, people like the idea. The same thing has happened, by the way, with over-the-counter cold medications today. It used to be if you walked into a Walgreens or a CVS or, you know, you would look at the, the over-the-counter cold medications and you might find a decongestant and maybe there was an antihistamine. Now they're all bundled together. You get a pain reliever with an antihistamine and it's overnight relief and it's got five things in one. This is the idea of what they did with combination uh, drugs that were prescriptions. So they were putting together penicillin or some form of an antibiotic together with uh, what would be normally just a, a regular part of the cold medication like suppressants and others. Sometimes it was a combination of an over-the-counter medication with a prescription medication. Sometimes they actually prescribed put together combinations of two existing uh, antibiotics thinking that it made them stronger somehow. It turns out that we now know in studies completed years after they started first dispensing them, that the combinations often created, exacerbated the side effects and diminished the actual effectiveness of both drugs. And you think to yourselves, you two know it, but your listeners may think, okay, so how was it possible if the drugs weren't only useless, but in some cases could be harmful, that they were marketed for nearly a decade so successfully? And that's because at that time, the FDA did not require drugs to show that they were effective, only that they were basically safe. Basically safe means they didn't kill you. Um, they didn't cause terrible side effects. The, the safety the clinical trials were, were didn't exist until after 1962, but there was nothing to test whether it was effective until uh, efficacy until after 1962. Then they went back over a period of four and five years. They tested all these combination medications. They found out they were useless. And then those were the first class of medications that the FDA started to decertify. It's a fascinating process, but for about a decade, they were sold because nobody could prove that they were useless, a waste of money, or might be dangerous. But as a result, they added exactly as you said, Keith, to the over-prescribing by a great margin antibiotics in America. Well, speaking of marketing, I think it's time to open the stage for one of our central characters here, and that's Arthur Sackler. So, Gerald, tell us about this guy. I mean, who, what was his background? He was a physician. Where did he start? And he made a pivot in his career, I think still while he was in residency, I believe, um, to a different direction. Tell us about yeah, this guy. You, you, you know, um, Colin, I, when I, as a quick sidelight, when I started this project, I, I thought it would be interesting if there was a family 
that appeared from World War II and on, essentially, when the penicillin takes place, that were doing different things in the drug industry. You could come back to them occasionally. They gave you a human narrative, some story that wove in and out of all the laws about you know orphan drugs and what's happening with, uh, with new efficacy statements and that. And they didn't exist, meaning that Johnson & Johnson, the, the family dropped out of the business. I mean, they were shareholders, but it became a public company. It was run by different people. That had happened with Wyatt. It, it happened with Pfizer and all of them. And then all of a sudden, freedom of information files, which you apply for as a journalist, you send in a request under the law to these different government agencies and ask for old files on people. And sometimes you get gold and sometimes you don't. Came back with this information about the Sackler family, the owners of Purdue Pharma and OxyContin, that brought the story of the Sacklers back into the 40s and 50s. And they became the narrative thread in a very unusual way in the book, quite unexpected, never planned to be. And the story is Arthur Sackler and his two brothers, Mortimer and Raymond. They're first generation Americans born in Brooklyn to Eastern European immigrants. They're the first ones in the family ever go to college, the first ones to go to medical school. To the two younger brothers, as an interesting aside, had to go to Scotland to complete their medical degrees because there was a quota in New York at the time at New York University for the number of Jews and blacks who could get into the class that it was limited. And so the Jewish quota had already been filled. It was a Jewish family, so they had to go abroad to finish their degrees. All three brothers became psychiatrists. And Arthur was working in the marketing department at Shearing, the German manufacturer during the war, until it was taken over by the US government leaves sharing in the 40s and, and starts to work at one of the very handful, tiny, small medical advertising companies called McAdams. And he later ends up buying that in the, in the early 50s. And the reason that seems like an odd career move, he also does a stop in terms of research. He writes research papers as to his brothers. He works at Creedmoor in research and Creedmoor is the largest state hospital asylum mental institution at the time, 8,000 bed institution in New York. Um, so he's at sort of the cutting edge of viewing that you might be able to do not just analysis as a psychiatrist, but you might be able to develop medications that would help in terms of releasing people from the institutions. Thorazine turned out to be that drug in the 50s. But what Arthur Sackler wanted to do was go to companies like Pfizer, which he did, that became his first big client, and say to them, I can revolutionize the way you market drugs. And most pharmaceutical companies say, what do you mean market drugs? We don't market drugs. We sell drugs to doctors. We don't sell it to them, but we get doctors to write prescriptions for our drugs. We don't write to consumers. We don't advertise to consumers. And all we do in advertisements, we run advertisements in the Journal of the American Medical Association or other institutions that are basically reproductions of the drug packet insert. It's pretty boring stuff and black and white. They're not spending any money on it. There are no ad departments. And Sackler said, that's what's wrong. You should be doing four color ads, double page spreads inside the medical journals. You should be doing pullout ads sometimes in magazines like Time and Newsweek. They go to doctor's offices to put out in their waiting room. You should be sending detail men. They were all men at that time. Those are men and women who are on the sales team to visit doctors in person. You should be sending out free samples of your products, which he instituted with Pfizer. You should be able to send out the equivalent of pharmaceutical swag, uh, gifts to doctors at some points. You should be able to set up a speaker's bureau over time, which would put some doctors who specialized in prescribing and dispensing your medication so they could go out and give lectures and be paid for it. He took seven and a half to $10 million of Pfizer's money, which was a record at the time. And he made their drug Teramycin the number one selling antibiotic in the United States at a time when the only difference it had, as we mentioned before from a competitor's drug was it was one atom of difference, but it had Arthur Sackler's marketing to it. And he then went on in the 1960s to make Hoffman LaRoche's Valium, 
the, the benzodiazepine, the number one drug in America, and it stood there for 15 years. That's an unbroken time uh, at the top of the drug charts. $100 million drug, first time in, the, in industry's history, and then the first billion dollar drug. So he was really a revolutionary marketing person who brought the ideas of Madison Avenue and hard sell to the drug business. Many in the drug business at the time would tell you that he, he hurt the drug business by making it the hard sell Madison Avenue, but the bottom line benefited from the companies that used him. And as a result, his ways were copied by the companies that didn't even hire him. Yeah, he may have heard it, but uh, it's been a nice ride for many people uh, yeah. because of the, you know, everything that he, he invented most of this. And, you know, and it's interesting, the, it would be one thing if, if I said this, okay, Arthur Sackler, he reinvented, he's the one responsible for doing the, uh, the, uh, the way that drugs are marketed that, and, and there was nothing else to it. It's just a claim or, uh, that I had. But what I was shocked to find is that he was investigated by the Senate, for, for instance, and in 1962 hearings that they had, these Senator Estes Kofofer, the crusading Tennessee senator who had gone after the mafia and all, was having hearings on drug pricing. And Arthur Sackler was called to testify. I, I found the, the uh, for the first time that had been the confidential files of the investigative staff, they talk about a Sackler empire. They talk about the fact that the Sackler brothers control all of these different companies that often seem to be competing for business under different names. They hide their interest in it. They are at the same addresses and use the same telephone numbers. I spent months literally at one point coming up with over a hundred companies that they had their tentacles in at the time. And these were also, it turns out from the FBI, card-carrying members and two of the three brothers of the American Communist Party in the 40s and 50s at a time in the Cold War when that was really quite a danger. Uh, and so they were an unusual family. And the, at a, Arthur Sackler is called before the Senate and at one point is castigated for the fact that one of the ads that he runs for a company shows the effect of a drug and the effect is shown with two x-rays. And so there's an x-ray of a person who has this, this congestion and sort of blockage inside the lungs. And then a, a picture afterwards where the lungs are clear and it's advertising a medicine that's supposed to help that as an antibiotic. Well, it turns out that the two x-rays are of different people. Only one doctor saw that and wrote into the FDA. And not only are they different people, but neither one took the drug. The, so it's fantastic. And Sackler, when confronted with that, said, but the ad doesn't say that they're the same person and doesn't say they took the drug. It's just illustrative. Um, when he was later challenged for putting a four-page color ad into Time magazine, because you were not allowed to uh, advertise to consumers, he noted to the investigators that the ad had a perforated edge so that he expected doctors, when they got the magazine, to pull the ad out before they put it out in the waiting room for, for patients to read, which is ridiculous. So he had figured out loopholes of how to push the industry in a much more aggressive way. And it's really fascinating to watch the role that he plays um, and changes the way the drugs are marketed. Really quick, you know, he did have certainly some interest in communism. I mean, it's, it's difficult, at least for me to tell how deep that interest was, some of his friends. But yeah, it wasn't just uh, Senate staffers looking at him later. I mean, it was the FBI. What, what, what sense did you get of him? Do you think he really had a genuine interest in, in this or did that evolve over time? And, and why didn't the FBI ever find? And there was a lot of things they overlooked. Uh, maybe it's because he's just so good at talking his way out of things. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it might be. I mean, they investigated the sectors for 20 years into the late 1960s, which is really fascinating to me. At one point, 
uh, Arthur had a friendship with uh, these uh, Alfred Stern. Uh, he had wanted to buy uh, Purdue Pharma, which the brothers bought. He wanted Stern to buy it for him early on. Stern had a lot of money out of Chicago. He and his wife, Martha Dowd, fled the United States as Soviet spies. Arthur was friends with them. When the FBI interrogated Arthur on it, he downplayed all of that. And uh, they, they weren't able to follow up. They had much too much other things to do, more important than Sackler. But what's interesting is he definitely was committed to that. Uh, when he used his own advertising firm, McAdams, as a place where blacklisted journalists in the 1950s could go safely to get work. And what I mean by blacklisted journalists, even the New York Times, LA Times, places that pride themselves on being at the forefront of free speech, when their journalists were called before the Senate Investigating Committee of Joe McCarthy and asked whether they were members of the Communist Party, if they took the Fifth Amendment and said, I refuse to answer, they lost their jobs often as journalists. And, and Arthur Sackler would give them those jobs. And that was some at some risk to himself. In World War II, he protested the fact and led the protest in some ways in New York City against the Red Cross segregating black and white blood. They, the doctors running the Red Cross knew that there was no medical reason to segregate black and white blood, but it was done during World War II. And Sackler was one of those at the uh, forefront of saying it was wrong. So his politics were there. But as you know from reading the book, his politics and the politics of his brothers disappear by the late 60s and on, they're, they're no longer red. They are green, meaning that they're, they're interested in building a business. <laughs> yeah, because, right? I mean, you do have to kind of admire him at first, right? I mean, he's a self-starting guy. He had to fight through all this anti-Semitism everywhere. And, yeah, he was helping these people. And, you know, if you are a believer in free speech, I mean, that's, you know, that's what that's the side we're supposed to be on. So then... Uh, well, okay, one more quick question here, because you did mention in one of the footnotes, these FBI files, not all of them were declassified for your research. Why do you think some of this stuff all this time later is still classified? What's going on there, Gerald? Yeah, so the system is so slow, and I'm glad that you asked me, uh, Colin, because I am able to tell you today, uh, as we're talking, um, ah. here in early August, uh, so this is the process of freedom of information for those who don't do it and never know what it's really like. You can, can't appreciate it unless you're involved in it. So uh, <laughs> one of the people who is listed as a member of the Communist Party is uh, Beverly Feldman, who turns out to be married to Raymond Sackler, one of the youngest brother. Beverly only died last year, and she was one of the directors of Purdue Pharma when OxyContin was marketed. So together with Raymond, her husband, she's been named in a number of lawsuits. And uh, you can't get files really on somebody unless you get their permission to re release the files or until they die. I so see. at the point that she, uh, she died, I then submitted a new request for the FBI file that I now had the number on. And I received a request today, which obviously COVID has pushed everything back. Um, but it says here, it's a request that says, you know, thank you for your information. We have it. From, this, from the time of receiving this request, we now estimate that we will process your file in 39 months. So you wonder why wow. things are slow. Wow. They will yeah. go through it to see if anything should be redacted when you see a file that has black lines through it because somebody, so it will take me another three plus years before I even see that information on Beverly Sackler. And then if there's information that are redacted that I want to appeal, that will take longer. So maybe in four years, I'll be able to do an update to some paperback, or I will be able to publish an article about what Beverly Sackler and the Sacklers were doing in the 60s or 70s. There may be some news in there that will be interesting, but we won't know it in terms of the public record until it's out. And there's no way to speed that up. Amazing. Just a a follow-up tangential question. The redaction, is that because 
would that be because it affects people who are still alive or why would they redact things? The, uh, it's almost, uh, so a great question. Most of the time, if you ask for anything that's within uh, the last 30 years, 40 years, it's because somebody's still alive um, and they're still protecting a source. They want information out like that. But sometimes it's also protecting a program um, that they had or an investigative program. Sometimes it's protecting the identities of the FBI agents who were involved. Um, and often it protects the name of a source, a confidential source, even after the death of that source, because, and this is a perfect example, um, in, a, in an unrelated case, but in the Kennedy assassination, where I've been trying to get files for many years of what's happened in Mexico City when Oswald visited a month before the assassination, the CIA continues to redact the information released from that file because its belief is, this is the argument, that if it disclosed who were the informants who lived in Mexico to the CIA back in the 1960s, their families might suffer today as a consequence of having worked with the American intelligence agency, um, mm. especially if those people were pretending to have been leftists and were really double agents. So I understand that there are sometimes effects down the road. And, uh, this, uh, and sometimes you get somebody with what I call a heavy black marker and they over-redact because they just don't think it should be out. And that's when you have to fight it as a journalist and try to get it released. Wow. Interesting. I guess there's methods and means of gathering intelligence too that are probably still used today and they don't always want to reveal how they use things too, right? That's true, except there's no form of technology that existed back in the 1940s, 50s, or 60s, which isn't improved on today. I mean, Big Brother could exist in today in between facial recognition and our phones telling us, you know, where we are at all points and everything else more than they could ever dreamed of back in the 50s and 60s. So it's human intelligence primarily that they're getting their information from. Right, right, absolutely. Okay, back to Arthur here. Um, <laughs> let's have some fun here and talk about Arthur and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Met. What's, what was his involvement there? You know, I think that there's a certain point, it's interesting about the, the, the Sacklers, when they start to make money, and, and there's two parts of that. They're making money when you started this talk today talking about Betadine. I mean, they're successful with their products. They have Senecott, which is a uh, relieves constipation, natural product. Uh, they have a few products from Purdue Pharma and they're making some money with Purdue, but the big money is being made from Arthur's advertising clients where he's really uh, hitting the, the big time. And when they do make that money, they want something. They want a level of respectability for giving away some of their money. And they decide it's gonna be an art. He's sort of obsessed about collecting Asian art. He builds up one of the greatest collections in the world as a private collector. And his brothers follow him by collecting art. But there's a point at which he negotiates a deal with one of the world's renowned museums, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, when they desperately need money on a stalled uh, wing, uh, an extension of the museum, and he gets a deal that uh, looks to be um, about as good a deal as anybody's ever gotten to be paid over 20 years with no interest. The three brothers get their name put on an area called the Sackler Wing. Uh, they bring in an Egyptian temple that's being built. It's there today, the Temple of Dendur. It's one of the most visited parts of the museum. And he gets, Arthur does, 
something special. He gets a basement room inside the Metropolitan Museum for no rent that he gets to put all his collection in and his own people working there. Gets a telephone line that rings only in there. It's not listed <laughs> on the map of the museum to other employees. And the hope is the museum gives him this because he negotiates such a good deal. This is a guy who's negotiating good deals for drug companies when they're advertising. He's negotiating a good deal now for himself. And the Met believes if we give Arthur all these things, when it comes time for him to give away his Asian you know, collection, he'll give it to us. And what does Arthur do? It's vintage Sackler. He uses the Met for everything he can. And then he gets a better deal down the road from the Smithsonian to put into the Freed on the National Mall. And that's why the, you know, the Sackler Freed is open eventually. So uh, Arthur does, and the Sackler brothers who follow him, Mortimer and Raymond, if you watch him, and the reason I talk about it a little bit in, in the book with the Metropolitan Museum and what goes on, is you also find out the same way that he applied that to the drug industry when he was doing advertising for them. And you find out a little bit about the Sackler's philosophy when it comes to Purdue and the marketing of OxyContin. And this is a family, and it's to their credit, if you look at it in terms of they're not, you know, taking advantage of uh, loopholes that aren't allowed, uh, that haven't been created. They're taking advantage of every permissible one. They're pushing the envelope. They're hard negotiators. There's nothing in them that's going to roll over and say, okay, we give up. So if the FDA, they will ask the FDA for every possible break they can, as they did on the, we talk about this after, for the label for OxyContin when it came out in 1996, they're going to ask for the world. And then it's up to the FDA to say no. Otherwise, the Sacklers are going to be asking for it. That's how they negotiate. Right smartest people in the room absolutely yeah. it's curious my um my parents well we lived in new york at the time that the sackler wing was opening and uh for my parents and for their sort of cadre of new york liberals sackler was a huge hero for them because he was literally breaking down walls this was like uh the the vaunted metropolitan was allowing this this uh jewish immigrant to have this wing and you know in your face um uh new york society and uh, i wonder if that wasn't part of um you know his whole his whole uh efforts i mean everything was was sort of like he made he positioned himself to be this heroic person by by picking um people that he he wasn't um he wasn't trying to pick on common people he was trying to pick on this this establishment that everybody was rooting against yeah very interesting you that because i think that he always did have a thing about um feeling as though in the drug industry and in the advertising business look both madison avenue and the early part of the american drug industry if you look through merck and all the companies they were really pretty waspy uh there weren't uh, you know any uh, jews at the top of the drug industry they they weren't creating it there were no african americans or asians it was pretty much a, a white anglo-saxon protestant business and and sackler felt that so much that i didn't know until i did the book and talked to a fellow you know michael sonnenreich who was his lawyer for a while that he had even hid the fact that he was jewish early on um he used to have to sit around as he said in the in these meetings with drug executives telling you know these um <laughs> excuse me for the slur, but as Sonnenreich describes it, these kike jokes, and you'd have to pretend they were funny and laugh, even though you were Jewish and not laugh. So when Sackler gets to the Metropolitan Museum, it is very waspy at the time in hell. He's one of the early Jewish donors who comes in, and he still believes, though, that he was kept off of the Metropolitan's board of directors because he was Jewish and they weren't able to open it up. So he still had that feeling, no matter how big he got, even though the letters on the Metropolitan Museum were six feet tall of that, and even though it said Sackler Wing, there's a part of him that still felt he was getting second-class treatment. Right. 
Yeah, I remember when I, I was a kid, I first went to see that temple. What struck me is there's graffiti on there, but it's from the 1800s. It just blows your mind, you know? <laughs> I could never it's fantastic. You'll see some French soldier, that Italian soldier is putting, yeah. you know. I, I looked it up reading your book. One of them was actually a British admiral, you know. It's right because, Brad, yeah, it's just unbelievable. But it's a very dramatic wing, too. It's not just the temple itself, but it's the, it's the architecture. And, it's just and, gorgeous. And, and, you, and both of you know, so this is interesting. This is just a business item, but uh, you would think that the Metropolitan Museum would not have trouble raising money for a wing, but timing is everything. And this was after the Six-Day War between Israel and its Arab neighbors in 1967, nobody wanted to contribute in New York City the millions of dollars required to build a wing to house an Egyptian temple. It was all mired in Middle East politics. So the Metropolitan was stuck in a period when it was having trouble raising the money, which it never thought would be the case. And Sackler came as a savior to that. And that's one of the reasons he got such a good deal. He was buying at the bottom. Absolutely. And as you point out, characteristically, um, uh, making it a gesture towards uh, the, the concept or the myth of, of, Middle, of Middle Eastern peace as well. So, you know, the, the Jew comes and, and uh, brings in the, um, the Middle Eastern art. So that, uh, fascinating. That. That, that's right. And, you yeah. know, there's an interesting sidelight. Uh, I mean, as you know, there's a footnote to all of this. There's a movement today by a lot of activists to take down the Sackler name from the many art institutions, the Serpentine, uh, you know, the, the Tate in London, uh, Harvard, Yale, uh, it's at Tufts University, the medical school. And Arthur Sackler's widow, the third wife, uh, and uh, his daughter have sort of argued somewhat in vain, well, Arthur should be exempted. Whenever it's Arthur's name, it was Arthur's money because he died before OxyContin was out. You know, he died in 1987, so he's he wasn't there when OxyContin came out. None of the money from the estate went to him for the, from OxyContin profits, and as a result, you should only take down the name if you want to at all, if it's Raymond or Mortimer's name, but most places are not drawing the difference. They see Sackler up there, and to them, it's the same as the Purdue Owners. See, and they're forgetting the, the, the lesson here because originally there was a huge donation right to the Met just to cash so they could buy up artwork from a famous railroad tycoon at the time whose name I can't remember. And there's a reason you can't remember him because Arthur had that name removed as part of the deal to put his name on, right? <laughs> so none of this it, stuff lasts forever. <laughs> it's so fantastic. And you know, that's the most interesting part. And as a matter of fact, there's even a moment for those who might remember it, it, in Carnegie Hall uh, for years, if you went there and I lived in New York for 25 years, there was Avery Fisher Hall and many of the best concerts would be in Avery Fisher Hall named after this amazing man who came to America and as an immigrant developed all of these inventions uh, far ahead of his time. That hall has now been renamed the Geffen Hall uh, after David Geffen, the uh, Los Angeles producer and, and you know, Hollywood figure. He bought the rights from the Fisher family, went to them and said, I'll pay you X amount of money for you to sell the rights to me. And then he gave another $100 million to Carnegie Hall to put his name on it. So not only is your name not there forever if somebody buys it, but now it's subject to being outbid by a future person <laughs> who's made enough money. So there's no honor at all in getting your name uh, put on the, on the wall in concrete. Incredible, incredible. All right, we got to get back to drugs here. So, because um, we could continue on this for quite some time, but I'm watching the clock. Um, I want to take a, take, take a moment, you know, when we think about history, sometimes we forget about parallels. Like a few episodes ago, we talked about this all women's hospital during World, World War I in the UK and something Keith and I really didn't know anything about. It's fascinating. But when you think about women and their ascendancy, you know, in the workforce and independence, drugs actually play a role in this. And you don't always think about this. So everything from Valium to stimulants to birth control. And 
I'm gonna read a quote here from your book because this is pretty crazy, I think. Um, this is a guy, uh, Dr. Wilson, who was writing a book basically sponsored by one of these companies and why co-written. Yeah, exactly. And co-written almost by Arthur. Um, Wilson's describing postmenopausal women. And he's talking about, uh, you know, the debilitating symptoms, um, missing life's values, um, they exist rather than live. And here he's, he's talking about one patient who is, what was quote, a vital, wonderful woman who had been the focal point of our family into a pain racked, petulant invalid, unquote. That's his mom he's talking about. That's his mom. <laughs> is, is, she's, a, is, she's a eunuch. Isn't it amazing? That's his mother. I, yeah, it's just incredible. So we're talking about the but, attitudes to women and how drugs played a part. Let's, let's, so let's, Sackler was very smart in the marketing and, and he, st- he kicked it off in this way, but other companies and other advertising firms picked it up. I have a chapter called Targeting Women, as you know, and, and it was in fact targeting women. In the 1960s, you start 1960, 95% of all doctors in America are men. So Arthur knows you're advertising to men, and that's the stereotype that you need to fit of what they think women need. Well, Wilson and, was a gynecologist, by the way, too. Yeah, yeah gynecologist. And so the, um, and he, he relied, Arthur did on these experiments the U.S. Army had done at Walter Reed in the 50s called the Executive Monkey Experiments, in which the Army strapped two monkeys into this contraption, which really only their arms could move, their heads are locked down, and delivered electric zaps to their feet uh, to this pair. And next to one of the monkeys was a lever. The monkeys are pretty smart, and if it learned to operate that lever and push it, it stopped the zap of the electricity to both of their feet. So they would keep the monkeys and the monkey would learn to stop that electric zap after a while and would continue doing it. When they died, and they did this dozens of times, this experiment, they would do autopsies and what they called the executive monkey, the monkey who operated the lever to stop the electric zaps, it would have some type of what was the equivalent of plaque buildup in, in the, the arteries. It would have uh, ulcers often, it would have some signs of what stress had done in degenerative ways to the organs. The non-executive monkey, didn't have that in almost any instance. And so as a result, Sackler interpreted that to mean, you'll love this, and I mean love it, not as like it, but you'll marvel at his ingenuity, <laughs> diabolical ingenuity. Ah, the executive monkey, that's men, because they have to go out, they're the breadwinner. They have to operate the lever. They have to appear strong for society. They can't show any weakness. They're under tremendous stress to bring the money home to the family. So what men get when they're under stress, they get ulcers, they get heart disease, Women, on the other hand, that's the non-executive monkey. They don't get any physical results. They're just neurotic and hysterical. So we need to give them Valium and benzodiazepines and mild tranquilizers to control the hysteria and neurosis and at the same time make them more effective at housework. So I literally have ads from the 60s in which Adderall is being sold as a stimulant, a prescription stimulant, and the the ad shows a woman doing more vacuum cleaning at a faster rate. Uh, Mm -hmm. Arthur's ads for Valium show a young woman who says, 35 single and neurotic and that she might feel better about being single and not finding somebody who who lived up to her expectations as her father if you gave her Valium. And as a result, 70% of the prescriptions through the 1960s for the mild tranquilizers and the benzos go to women. Um, They get the uh, almost two thirds of all the prescriptions are being written at this time for women for stimulants. And what's fascinating to me is that when the contraceptive pill comes out in 1960, Uh, and the first lifestyle drug, a drug not given, by the way, for a disease or an illness, but for a a choice that you want not to have children at that moment when you're taking the drug. The FDA wrestled with that. When they approved that, for nearly 15 years, the company that 
first put that out, Cyril hid the information, the accumulating information about blood clots and the possibility of risk of cancer because they thought oh, it's not going to be a big issue. It took 15 years to find out that that was a major issue. And the same with Wilson, who you mentioned a moment ago. We now know that he was subsidized by Wyeth to write a book that essentially sold hormone replacement therapy at very high levels of estrogen to women based not on the idea that it would make them healthier, but it would retain their femininity. It would make their hair thicker. It would make their skin better. It would keep them sexually vibrant. And so it was sold in a way through this book, not as a medical ad, but essentially as a bestseller to say, this will keep you forever young. And that's the title you know, of uh, his book. As a result, they hid the information, Cyril did, uh, I mean, Wyeth did for nearly a decade about the accumulating instances of breast cancer at levels of estrogen much too high, which we now know can cause that. And none of that came out until Senate hearings in the mid-1970s. So the problem was the drug companies marketed to women in the stereotypical ways that worked because many of the doctors were men who viewed these stereotypes as correct. And um, when there were side effects, unfortunately, they buried them in the back room often at the major companies on two of the most significant drugs, contraceptives and hormone replacement. And the effects were devastating. It's a bad chapter in the drug industry's history. Right. Well, this touches on a, a problem that runs through the whole theme and certainly is, is germane to the Oxycontin thing. It's that the, uh, the pharmaceutical companies were controlling the information. So they were uh, either hiding it or even if there was a paper, it was often written um, often by, um, by Arthur Sackler or one of his uh, confederates. Could you talk about that as, as an ongoing problem? Yeah, you know, there are, there are little booklets that I have that were distributed to all the doctors in the country. They're from the 60s and that about understanding anxiety. Fabulous little, too expensive they would be to be made today. And they do include studies. They include references to studies that were often backed, in fact, by Hoffman LaRoche, for instance, for Librium and then for Valium. Um, later would be backed by, you know, the makers of Xanax and the competitors that replaced it. Uh, and the... Doctors who would receive that, you know, unless it was your specialty and that's what you were doing, you didn't have the time to do your independent research. It looks very effective on its face. The, you know, these were not companies. They realized this is an unusual economic model, the pharmaceutical industry. It does not sell its products. The manufacturer of the products does not sell directly to the consumer who buys it, the patient. They have to go through this middle person, the, the physician. And the doctors, the men and women who are physicians have to first write that prescription. So in selling to the, the doctors, they know the drug companies that they can't just say, by the way, write this because you like me as a drug rep. Write this because it's the newest and latest and greatest uh, drug in the category and it will be believed. They have to make a somewhat compelling case in terms of science to most physicians. And they do put together a very impressive sales routine to make that pitch in writing and in person. And I think that doctors, as you find out, you know, even when well-intentioned, can sometimes fall prey to bad information. And the drug companies aren't disclosing the, the side effect information. They weren't back then in the 60s and 70s, not only to the public, but they weren't disclosing it to physicians, that's for sure. Right. And it was physicians who were leading, by the way, the, it was physicians tr who were dispensing the drugs, who were the ones saying on the fringes, by the way, I think there's an addiction problem with Valium. There was doctors who said, I, I have patients who seem to have trouble getting off of this medication. And Hoffman de Roche would say, oh, you know, you're you a one-off. 
You, you must be misinterpreting uh, what you see with your patients. Maybe your patients are abusing it. They were viewed as fringe doctors until they, the studies showed that they were actually the correct ones. Was the mistake that we were trying to go to the company to say, hey, your, your drug is flawed? Um, was there another avenue for doctors to go to at that time? Yes, the FDA. But the FDA was reticent to over-regulate a drug that it had already approved um, unless it had what I call a critical mass of information. So even when the FDA, for instance, and this happens on contraceptives, starts to receive the early reports about blood clots with women taking contraceptives, then they have to determine, is that higher than what the rate would be for blood clots in women as general, if they weren't on, on contraceptives at all? And they say, yes, it is. But is it now a high enough percentage that we think it's a direct cause of the drug? Or could it be a lifestyle because these women often happen to be smoking, or maybe they're doing something else? And that's, it falls into what I call the bureaucracy. Once it gets into the bureaucracy of the FDA, you're not getting very fast action. It'll often happen faster in the private realm, even if it takes years. All right, Gerald, we're getting closer on the time. I knew this was going to happen. We're going to have to fast forward quite a bit here. And this is the reason everyone needs to pick up your book because we're fast forwarding over a lot. Very interesting stuff. We got to talk about Oxycontin. And so we're, we're now post Arthur Sackler age here. And in fact, I don't think any of his kids directly went into the business, but other Sacklers did, right? Yeah, none of, uh, none of Arthur Sackler's uh, kids went into the uh, Purdue. It was Raymond Sackler and Mortimer Sackler were still alive who ran Purdue. Mortimer ran the foreign operations and Raymond, his younger brother, ran Purdue itself. And then Raymond's son, who's also a doctor, Richard Sackler, was the CEO of Purdue for quite a while. And uh, Raymond's uh, uh, children also were running it and their grandchildren. So yeah, if you read the news at all, you're familiar with many of these names for sure. Um, we got a lot of uh, you know, medical folks listening to this, they're going to know a lot of these stories, but um, you know, there's a lot of people affected by this. Let's talk about Oxycontin itself. First of all, what was, what was the promise to doctors and patients? Why was this so unique? Yeah. So I think what's, what's, what's fascinating to me about Oxycontin is if you realize that it's an outgrowth and a lot of doctors will know it of a previous Sackler Purdue family product called MS Contin. Um, and that product was a time-release morphine product, which had been developed in England by the Sackler sister company that they own called Knapp Pharmaceuticals. By the way, for it was the holy grail quest of a nurse-turned-physician, Cicely Saunders, a British nurse-turned-physician, who had started the modern hospice movement. And she was looking for an end-of-life pain treatment for terminal cancer patients because she said, I'd like these cancer patients to be able to die at home in a hospice setting with their family instead of having to die in a hospital. And what was keeping her from doing that? She didn't have a pain medication. They were giving the equivalent of legal heroin, the uh, licensed heroin at the time to her patients, but every four hours it had to be dispensed which meant you had to have nurses around the clock there to dispense it off an IV. So she was looking for a long lasting pain medication, strong enough to relieve end of life terminal cancer pain. And if she could get that, she could send patients home and have a hospice move. And that's what the Sacklers came up with. There were other companies looking at it. They invented it with NAP. They invented this invisible polymer coating on morphine, called it MS continuous in England, then came over here as MS content. From that, is what OxyContin is. It uses the same invisible polymer coating, essentially, with the long-acting relief of 12 hours. But instead of morphine, 
which the Sackler family knew had a stigma attached to it because it was viewed as an end of life drug. They used oxycodone as the, uh, as the active ingredient. And once they put oxycodone in it, they convinced the FDA when it was released in 1996 that the fact that oxycodone had for the first time a long acting release, 12 hours versus four to six for every instant release like Percocet, um, that it would likely be less abused and would also not be as addictive. And although there were no studies to support that, the FDA said, hmm, sounds reasonable. And they put that on the label. They also put on the label in big capital letters, by the way, do not crush because that meant the it would Achilles really heel there. And that's that yeah, technology. all of the opiates <laughs> at once. And everybody who was abusing it as an addict knew that immediately. So it wasn't very effective to have the invisible polymer seal, oh, but yeah. it allowed Purdue to say this drug over time could be used for a whole host of pain that was less severe than end of life pain. And that opened the Pandora's box because it happened to dovetail. And many doctors who are listening to this who went to medical school in the 80s will remember that there was a reevaluation movement of pain. A group of doctors out of Sloan Kettering in New York, uh, cancer uh, doctors, pain management was just beginning. It wasn't a separate field. They thought that pain was underdiagnosed. The doctors often said, oh, you've got pain. It's, an it's a cause of another symptom. But they said it should be treated as its own symptom so that you get it as the fifth diagnostic sign. It's asked in a, in, when you go to see a doctor now, your primary care physician says, you know, take your temperature, see what your blood pressure is. And they ask you what your pain level is on a one to 10 scale. This starts in the mid to late 80s. And also a reevaluation of opioids. These doctors thought maybe opioids had been tarred and feathered and they weren't as addictive as we had thought before. So OxyContin comes out in the mid 90s in a perfect storm on top of a group of doctors saying pain is underdiagnosed, opioids may not be as addictive. And here come the Sacklers and Purdue with a 12 hour OxyContin product that seems to fit the bill for what the new pain management doctors are looking for and it takes off. Boy, does it. Um, <laughs> it it's one of, the, well, one of the best selling drugs of all time. Yeah, um, best-selling drug, by the way, Purdue will often say it only had a small part of the pain market. You know, they view it as terms of percentage, yes. The Percocets and, and the instant-acting pain pills um, certainly were prescribed many more times. Uh, but it's the biggest-selling single dollar volume drug for a uh, prescription opioid. It, $35 billion it brought in in revenues from 1996 through 2019. And uh, it, it was a, a, a hit for Purdue beyond any, anything they could have imagined. Uh, and so it, it played the role in making the Sacklers, by the way, in 2015, Forbes put them on the list of the wealthiest 400 families in America. And they came in at $14 billion. That was created not from Arthur coming up with clever ideas for Betadine on Apollo 11. It came from OxyContin. <laughs> All right. So as we're getting towards the end here, I mean, it's, it's easy to start making a list of villains here, right? We were talking a little bit before we started recording about this. Um, I mean, Gerald, I'm talking to someone here who wrote a book about Joseph Mengele. And I mean, you did that. And I was watching an interview you did on a talk show earlier this week where you had uh, Joseph Mengele's son with you. Um, I think the only interview he ever did. And I'll admit, I mean, I listened to that and maybe being a father now, they read some chapter, you know, some excerpts from your book, you know, what the guy did. And I was thinking about it the rest of the day. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I mean, you've peered into darkness, you know, on some of these projects and there's a lot of darkness to explore here, but having done that, Gerald, I'm curious, one, 
how you deal with that personally when you have to really look at some of these dark subjects because there's a lot of numbers behind all this and these are real people you know who died from this but also how you think about this whole situation you know what went wrong here is it just that there's just evil people or is it no. perverse incentives i mean what i, I think what, i think that what happens at a certain point this is going to sound is too generic but in in a broad sense the problem is that greed takes over the and so it's not enough to make a hundred million dollars in profit from your drug you want to make 500 million not that you need it not that you're going to spend it you just want to do it and so when i say when i look at something it's how do i deal with it it at times it gets my blood pressure when i'm working on it going through the roof i get very aggravated and frustrated by it because when you're on monday morning we're here looking back at the crisis you know what went wrong you can put it together. And so it's, it's easy. Monday morning quarterbacking is easy because you can say, oh, the FDA should have done this and they should have done that. And, and here was a situation in which there's not just one party at fault. So yeah, I put a lot of uh, fault on the Sacklers and on the marketing team at Purdue who over-marketed the drug and they targeted veterans associations and they tried to push it for osteoarthritis, even though the test had failed. But let me tell you, the Sacklers in Purdue could not have pulled off the opioid epidemic on their own. It's like a bank robber who goes into a bank and says, you know, I want all your money, but the, the getaway drivers outside as accomplice is going to take them away and he needs that getaway driver. So the getaway drivers here were the physicians who weren't prescribing the right way. Some of them opened pill mills. Some of them dispensed 5% of physicians. Who purchased, there were some bank know, employees dispensed. that opened the vault for you. Yeah, they, the, <laughs> so the, there were physicians at fault. There were distributors at fault. And when I say distributors, these are multi-billion dollar companies, Cardinal, McKesson, Amerisource, Bergen. They knew precisely when a little pharmacy in some town in Kentucky was getting more pills delivered than lived in five adjoining counties and they weren't reporting to the FDA. So the distributors were taking in money and not worried about the side effects. The pharmacies, the big chain pharmacies, CVS and Walgreens were sometimes giving bonuses to pharmacists who would direct you to a specific opioid product. Um, that shouldn't have been done. So that's why they're named in the lawsuits as well. In addition, the FDA was, was too reticent to take action. I have a section in which I talk about the DEA fighting with the FDA. I got these documents uh, sent by a DEA source. So the FDA was reticent to take the action early on. So there are plenty of parties to blame. It, it, you, know, you can't have a crisis like this. It's the perfect storm. But it's really, whether you want to call it evil or however you talk, it's just greed. It's a thing where you think I'm going to push it for more. And that greed affects the doctors who overprescribe. It affects the, the uh, um, distributors who aren't reporting it. It affects the pharmacies who are delivering it at, in too high numbers and affects the manufacturers as well. And, and that's really a shame because they all come together to America's deadliest pill prescription epidemic ever. Um, and it's a bad one. And just on a personal note, I mean, even your wife, Tricia, she's written books about the Nazis, right? She wrote one about a pharmacist at Auschwitz. I mean, the world's admit, worst pharmacist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if I had to spend a few years working on a project and digging this deep into the abyss, I, honestly, I don't know if I could do it. I mean, it's got to take a toll. I mean, just personally, how do you how do you deal with yeah. subject matter so, like that? Because so, it's important to, to get this out. So, it's so there are moments at which, and there are odd there are odd moments that sometimes you just are fed up with, and you just need to pre COVID. We would just need to sometimes take a break and go out for a walk just to, you know, get out, walk for uh, a few hours, clear our head and talk about nonsense and nothing in particular that was very serious. There was a point at which you wouldn't think of this at all. Trisha did, my book doesn't have photos. They run out of pages to put anything more in. But Trisha's book, <laughs> The Pharmacist of Auschwitz, about a Bayer pharmacist who ends up running the dispensary at Auschwitz, she did have pictures in that. And 
she looked through nearly 2,000 photos from Holocaust museums. And, from, mm. and I'll tell you, narrowing those pictures down, we went through those for a few days and that was like a punch in the stomach yeah. because there are pictures you've never seen before. And just forget, forget the writing of it in the story, just the visuals of that. We felt like somebody had taken us as a wash flag and dragged us out. And that's why often in the evening we're, we're streaming some Netflix science fiction show that has nothing to do with reality because it's our way of getting away from it. But uh, the, the thing is, when you start the project, you don't know at that moment, Colin, that there is a dark part to it, but there's also always a good part to it. And here's what I mean by that. In the Mengele story, the, the victims, you know, he lives a miserable life for three decades, this Nazi fugitive and, and his survivors, the people who survived him went on to flourish. In, in Trisha's book, it's a single camp survivor. And the first German judge who was Jewish after the war who tracked down this Nazi 20 years later and bring him to some form of justice. So I like to focus on what I call the justice part of the equation right. as opposed to just the crime part. And in pharma, by the way, although we're talking about the opioid crisis, and we've talked a lot about greed and Arthur Sackler and that, there are some great stories in here about innovation in the lab. You know, we're, we're on the edge of a revolution in biotech in terms of uh, what will be done in genetic improvements to, for cancer treatments down the road. Uh, although orphan drugs to treat rare genetic illnesses are very, very expensive, and that's another issue, they often have changed lives for people with Huntington's disease and many of these rare genetic illnesses. There are changes taking place in, in specific antibiotics and in our uh, DNA analysis that might be some of the first vaccines on COVID. So on the one hand, I love the stories of research, innovation, and dedication inside the laboratory and pharma. Right. Yeah. What is frustrating is when the drug that's found and patented then moves over to the marketing and promotion side. That's where we get into trouble sometimes. So the, the, so the product the science, is searching for an indication. Yeah, and they're looking right. And the, so the, the scientists who develop it, they aren't the ones saying, oh, by the way, I think we should be able to sell this to a 35-year-old neurotic uh, single woman <laughs> in an advertisement. It's somebody in marketing who's figured that out. And it's, it's almost there's two parts of pharma. It's a Jekyll and Hyde part in some ways. Me. Yeah. I have, a, I have a very brief, well, it's not a brief question, but um, uh, obviously uh, Arthur Sackler was the big, the big name in this. We found out more about him than any other character. Uh, there may not be an answer to this, but in your opinion, had Arthur been alive, do you think the Oxycontin would have spun out of control the way it did? So, you know, it's so interesting you asked that. This is a wonderful. So what do my wife and I do on our freeze days? We debate that question in part. <laughs> We've asked ourselves that because she does the research with me on the book. You know, what do you think? And there was a moment at which we thought early on that Arthur would have been smarter and would have said, you know, you don't have to... I said to Trisha, I think he would have controlled it a little bit. And she said to me, but what part of Arthur's life did he ever exercise control in? He always pushed it as far as the envelope would be. She thought if anything, um, he would have found even a cleverer way of marketing it. And it, it might've even been worse. I think she might be right. And I don't say that. I understand that he had nothing to do with OxyContin and his wife and daughter made that very clear. So it's just speculation, right. but put it this way, Arthur never put those voluntary restraints on himself. Uh, the man who got uh, the um, Betadine onto the Apollo 11 moon mission few, knew few limits to marketing. If Arthur was working for BlackBerry, we'd all be carrying Blackberries today. I thought that never <laughs> have happened. <laughs> that guy well was said. amazing. Well, we got to let you get going here. Um, there's so much more we 
I got a whole list of things we didn't get to, but that's, that's what your book's for. So uh, Gerald, to, to wrap things up here, tell everybody listening where they can find out more about you, your work and your book. Uh, well, the, uh, I have a, a website that's just my last name, Posner, P-O-S-N-E-R.com. And on there is information about pharma and about previous books as well. Uh, I used to say it's available everywhere where, uh, you know, books are sold. Uh, having, I had to not say that for about three months during the pandemic since all the physical bookstores were closed. Right. But now that they're back open, you can get it at your local bookstore and support your local indie. Yeah. Uh, and you can get it online from Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and others. Absolutely. Um, Gerald, thank you for the work you've done here. I mean, not just on this book, but uh, previous work. Uh, you, you, no, th- th- thanks. It's a tremendous you know, effort, I can imagine, the, it takes to put out something like this. And No, Colin, so this is, uh, as a sidelight, and whether, you know, you're recording, but if you don't have the time for it, but just for you to know, when you say that, you know, like, how do you go through it in, uh, in a, 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 what appears to be a dark subject or that, um, we sometimes say to each other at the end of a book like this or at the end of Trisha's book on uh, where I would help her on the research, okay, that's it. We're not doing this again. Life's too short. We just can't do it. It's like, you know, we've got to get something uplifting. I've got to do like, you know, I, I watch six or whatever. That's wonders of watch technology or some such thing, <laughs> you know? And then you, it's, I guess it's like, a, you know, sometimes with pregnancy or hear a woman say it was a very tough pregnancy and the pain was terrible. And then they, you know, it's not so bad a year later or things like that. And we forget a year later and we say, you know, maybe we should be looking at that oil industry or whatever. You're all right. Or tattoos. You have an addiction to stories like this. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it. The, uh, uh, the... Well, Gerald, we'll get uh, uh, links up to the book and some of your other work on our show notes up on the website. And everyone, that is Gerald Posner. Um, wherever, whenever you're listening, take care. And we'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.